How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships, to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com forward slash tips, T-I-P-S. And welcome to another edition of Hoops Adjacent. I am David Aldridge in D.C. in L.A. My man, Waz Lambre. Waz, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. Got a nice bright and early at 6.30 in the morning due to a bit, <laughs> uh, you know, a light bout of insomnia. But I got my Starbucks rolling. Um, got Jay here with us today. I'm, I'm feeling good. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I, I want to apologize to our listeners at the beginning because I have had about an hour of sleep. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just because I am a chronic insomniac. And so, you know, I I hope this will be good. I think it will be good, but you never know. So anyway, apologies in advance. And as Waz mentioned, our guest this week, a repeat guest. I think our first repeat guest, and it's for a good reason because he's that good. Our friend Jay Adande, who is the director of sports journalism at the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Also still a participant with ESPN on Around the Horn. And you've seen him in the last dance uh, documentaries many times. Jay, thank you for joining us again, my man. My pleasure. Thanks, fellas. Oh, man. It's, it's so good to have you. There's so much I want to talk to you about with regard to uh, the last dance. But we were talking before the before we started here. You know, you're in the middle of this whole kind of working, you know, kind of rolling decision to be made about academia that's going on across the country. And just kind of like, what are the stress levels you're hearing from your students with regard to remote learning? I don't know if Northwestern's going to straight pass fail like a lot of schools are going to uh, in the midst of this pandemic, but what are you hearing from your students? It's very stressful for them. And, you know, it's a tremendous amount of disappointment because this isn't what they signed up for. Right. <laughs> they, they signed up for. And one of the things we sell them at is you're in Chicago and right. there's so much here. We've got all the major sports here and two baseball teams and Big Ten sports. All the things are here and they're not getting to partake in that um, or, or just even though face-to-face, one-on-one experiences that, that come with the typical university experience. Uh, Northwestern did go to pass-fail for the spring quarter, PN as we call it, pass-no-pass pass here <laughs> technically. Um, we, we did that. The, everything, there, there's so many pros and cons. You know, Some, some people need the, the grades. They want the grades for a boost as they're trying to apply to grad schools. Uh, some people don't want the stress. It, it really came down to we, we can't have equity when people are in such different conditions right now. Right. The, the access that they might have, the, the, uh, their ability to get online even might mm-hmm. not be the same. So we just decided that it, it would be fairest to everyone to completely level the playing field and uh, go, with, go with the PN option. Um, you know, and now we wait. We've already made the commitment that for our, our summer quarter, which uh, primarily graduate students, what will be entirely online. Um, and now we wait to see what we'll do in the fall. But you can see, I think the lead was taken by the, the Cal State University system when they decided they won't have on campus. Uh, it's, it's just difficult to imagine any place being in position to have 
thousands of students living in the same dorms and attending the same classrooms and everything that we associate with normal college life right. <laughs> is, is a threat, is a threat to people's lives. Right. If, if not the students, um, certainly the professors and the staff and everyone else who's older who would be around campus. Exactly. I mean, there's just so many. That's the problem with this is the variables are just so acute and it, it involves everything, every gathering of any group of people it have so many different variables in it now. And um, it, it must be incredibly, you know, and I can't even imagine what it's like for a student, you know, to, to your point. I mean, these are not, <laughs> these are not community colleges. You know what I mean? I mean, these, right. these kids have come out of pocket or their parents have significant amounts of money. Um, and, and I just, I don't know how you make them whole. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I will say this for journalism students, and, and some of our guests have emphasized this, and I'm trying to get this across as well. In some ways, it levels the playing field because uh, I, I showed them an example of a network news broadcast where it was it was basically you know shots of Zoom interviews yeah. and stock footage that was taken off off uh, the, the generic feeds. And they put a package together, and that was on ABC News. Yeah. And guess what? A, a student could do that exact same thing right now. Right. That's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you, you can take the footage from, you know, the White House press conference. You can do your stand up in your house and you can or in your front yard and you can um, you can do Zoom interviews and put together a package. And it's going to look a lot like what you're seeing <laughs> on the network news these days. So in that sense, it's it's leveled the playing field. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a new time for sure. Um, and it's a difficult time. And uh, and you mentioned it before the the older professors especially i mean that's got to be older administrators i mean every college has venerated older professors that people love and want to sure. you know have around them all the time and they literally could kill them by being around them you know <laughs> and how do you even square that in your mind much less come up with a plan you know and, and that's the problem and then as you talk about sports Oh, let them play. I mean, yes, the numbers show that the death rate among, you know, those in the athletic age, 18s to 20s, 30s is, is very low. You know, it's it's generally not killing these people, but it, it is having lingering effects at the very least. We don't know how long term they will be. And the fact that there are coaches, the officials, yeah. you know, if you want to talk about collegiate sports, for example, um, or, or, or even the NFL. You know, NFL referees, they have other full-time jobs. Right. They don't need to do this, <laughs> right. you know, to, to, to pay their mortgages and, and buy groceries. You know, that, that's a secondary job for almost all of the NFL officials. So who are, who are many of them up there in years in the dangerous demographic range? Mm -hmm. So what's the incentive for them to come back? If the NFL comes back, will you have your best officials there, you know, around 100 sweaty people on the field? Yeah. I don't think so. I wanted to ask Jay what he thinks is lost from the online experience, right? Like, from my limited memories of, you know, especially early college years, it's, it's hard to get motivated to go to class <laughs> <laughs> in the first place, right? Like, especially when you first get there and you're making that adjustment. I just wonder what you think is lost from not having these guys come in at all, right? Like the in-person and, you know, some of these universities, cause I had both experiences. Like I've been in classes where there was 200 kids in it. And then at Brooklyn college, I've been to classes where it's like 40 of us. Right. Um, and you know, I think something's lost when you're not in there, like talking to people all the time. Absolutely. The engagement that comes with being there live, 
Um, I mean, compare the difference between watching a game on TV and, and being in the arena, right? And it, it's also just that the the soft around the edges. It, it's the okay, I've got an extra cl- question after class. I'm going to linger around for a little bit. I mean, that's my favorite part. And and also seeing who are the students who are motivated enough to come up and, and aren't done learning just because the, you know, we don't have literally bells anymore, but you know, just yeah. because the, uh, <laughs> just because the, uh, you know, the, it's, the, it's the appointed time and it's time to leave and, and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, you know what, I, I have more questions and I want to, I want to come up and, and discuss. And, and I love that, you know, and, 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 or maybe it's something that's not necessarily related to that day's lecture, but it's something that they're curious about, um, you know, and the appropriate time is to come up. So, so just those little things, uh, which is the equivalent of what's going to be lost when, okay, if you do have these games, let's say the NBA comes back in, in a you know studio form, basically, right. you don't have media on hand, and you can't walk out of the locker room with somebody on their way to their car, and just those extra little tidbits that you get uh, on the walkout, yeah. uh, brush up next to somebody, and or, or just linger. And so to me, the same things that you miss by not covering a game in person and being there live, those are the same types of things that students miss out on when they're not attending classes in person. I mean, it's every every memory I have of being in college involves being with other people doing something, you know. Or most of all, just the late nights in the dorms. Yeah. Talking yeah. about nothing that means anything at all. Right. Uh, <laughs> the meaning of life and existence. Exactly. But just you <laughs> three thirty in the morning. Yeah. When mm-hmm. you're nineteen. <laughs> I mean, I just remember senior year playing like Turbo Graphics. Remember that Turbo Graphics? You know, whatever <laughs> video game system you have, you know, playing and then it's it's five a.m. and then you go to Burger King and, and get breakfast. You know, something like that. Sure. We used to go to Steak and Egg every every Thursday when we put the paper to bed. You know, I mean, it was the yeah. only thing that was open, but it was such a such a bond you had with with your fellow students, you know, and your friends, really, you know. And yeah, just that's just a terrible thing that these kids have to go through. That's college, and, and that's what they're missing out on. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people back down the bike. I didn't. I made it a point. I said, just tire him out. Tire the fuck out of him. You just got to tire him out. And I kept hitting him and banging him and hitting him and banging him. It took a toll on Mike. It took a toll. And then (laughs) resting him a little bit. And then the the series changed. And I wish I could have did it earlier. I don't know if the outcome would have been different. But it it, it was a difference. (laughs) And and beating him down a little bit. The glove. I had no problem with the glove. <laughs> Let's bring DA into the conversation here. Welcome to the Comma is on the Athletic Podcast. Network. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs and just like the bullshit in his bracket. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. With David, David Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then he yeah. got their lungs out in front of everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. It was popping in so the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo <laughs> in Iowa. Welcome to Hoops Five, Four. We have ignition. Hey, Hoops, Hoops 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 well, we, you know, we can't, it's hard to transition, but we, we have to because um, people, when I hear about uh, your views of The Last Dance, I'm sure. And people always ask me first and foremost, how much time did you spend getting interviewed 
with the group and did you know what they were going to ask you beforehand? About an hour, I think. And it's funny, when they first contacted me, they said, we're doing this during the 97, 98 season. I said, well, that was like the one that I didn't do. Uh, right. <laughs> that was my first year in LA and I was very far removed. I didn't do the finals that year. Still bitter about that, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm saying, I'm not for sure I have anything to, to offer you here. And they said, well, no, we're really going to do the totality of, of Michael Jordan and the Bulls throughout the 90s and how they got to that point. And I said, well, in that case, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I got plenty to say about all that. Yeah. And it, it, it's interesting that, you know, that there's so much that we did talk about. I'm sure there's 90 percent of what you talked about is, is left out. And, and I understood that. I, I'm surprised I even made the final cut because when I heard that they talked for you know, 106 people. They talked to 106 people for 180 hours worth of footage, right, I think. Right, right. That they got multiple hours and multiple sessions with Michael Jordan. Yeah. Why do you need a word from me? Right. But part of it is you, you need that balance that the journalists provide. And because they didn't have a narrator, you need somebody to, to fill in the essentials, to fill yeah. in the blanks. If, if you look at most of what I say, it's very basic stuff. And then they met in the conference finals. <laughs> but but, but they, as from a filmmaking perspective, they, they you have needed to cover that. it. And yeah, I'm, you got to cover yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm happy to play that role. I'm happiest that I'm basically the one who sets up the Gary Payton-Michael Jordan exchange. I explain what happened and how effective Gary Payton was from an objective viewpoint. Then you hear Gary saying it, and then you have that now – multi memed uh, Jordan reaction <laughs> as he sees what Gary Payton is. I'll never be able to look at those two words, the glove, but not hearing Michael's voice saying, the glove. <laughs> <laughs> so dismissive, right? Right. The glove. Yeah. <laughs> it is amazing. I hope he's happy. He's got, he's got m many different memes now than the crying meme to fall back on for the rest of his life. <laughs> so you should be happy about that. Um, the other thing that people ask me about, obviously, is that, all the time is the Ken Burns criticism. And I was a history major, Jay. So I have, yeah. I, I respect what Ken Burns is saying. I understand what he's yeah. saying. My response to that though, is that what history isn't subjective. You know what I mean? Like all history is subjective. <laughs> like George Washington was the father of our country, according to all the white guys that wrote about him, you know, wrote books about him. <laughs> what history isn't subjective. You know what I mean? So that's, um, that's, I, but I think, I think in, in fairness to Ken Burns, and I'm glad you brought this up, David, because, um, I've been, <laughs> I've been consuming some of the last dance agita out there, yeah. like the last dance trutherism. Yeah. Like, you know, the truth about the Charlotte series, the truth about Jordan <laughs> having his absolute, like, undeniably his worst finals of the six in 1996 when he completely dismisses Gary Payton and all of that. Like, people are just like, look, like the doc says, BJ did what he did and MJ just went out and vanquished him. It's like, no, the Bulls went out and beat them the next <laughs> right, four games. It's right. not like he just exacted his will on them. And, you know, I think people are, and again, it's, it's something that so many people are participating with and there's universal praise for it. And there has to be a level of, some level of critique out there, right? Um, I listened to um, hang up and listen Slate's podcast with mm -hmm. um, uh, with 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 Joel Anderson and Fatsis and all of those cats, and um, they 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 <laughs> they've been just creaming the 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 the, the dog, but just based on just a sense that jo they, it's a feeling that Jordan gets to write his own history, which 
I just generally don't agree. I know that like a lot of people are going to watch the doc and just take it for what it is. I take it as this is Jordan's impression of his own life. Yeah. Which you get to have like this idea that, you know, we as a public deserve to, you know, tell Mike exactly about himself and his life. I'm like, I, I don't necessarily agree mm-hmm. with also, a basketball the, player. Mm-hmm. The existence of all those things you talked about. It, you know, it's not like this, the last dance exists in a vacuum and no one else is allowed to offer any right. rebuttal right. or explanation <laughs> right. or anything. There's this entire ecosystem. There's an entire economy now based right. on podcasts and articles and, and think pieces generated from the last dance. So everyone does get to contribute. And I would advise anyone to look at it in its totality and to see sure. the last dance is, is part of it. And this is Michael Jordan's perspective. And I don't think it's being presented as anything other than that. And I think there is a journalistic slash documentary value. This might not exist as a piece of journalism. I wouldn't classify it entirely as a documentary, but there is journalistic value in hearing Michael Jordan, for example, uh, address the, the notion that, that he was suspended for gambling and hearing David Stern on the record, most notably in hearing Brian McIntyre, who <laughs> come up with one of the top ten clients <laughs> in the entire <laughs> It's, it's outstanding. But, right. but you know, so it might not be a documentary, but we are documenting Michael Jordan's perspective on this. We, we are uh, here. You know, I'm not sure he's ever been directly asked that mm-hmm. some of these questions. Yeah. And so to, there is value in having these and there's just value in hearing. That. I mean, even if it's just the entertainment value of some of these memeable moments. Right. There's value in hearing Michael Jordan. And and just the, the emotional peak at the end of episode seven, when he's come to tears, kind of defending the way that he was, the way that he felt he had to be, the approach he took, you know, that maniacal approach that he took. And But you see how much it mattered to him because this was the path that he felt he had to take in order to maximize his talent and his career. Yeah, it's it's... I'm 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 just struck by, you know, so many people having that kind of, you know, reaction to this. I mean, was OJ the OJ doc made in America? Was that a was that an objective documentary? Hell no, it wasn't objective. It had a very specific point of view that it was arguing as it put OJ's case in the context of the racial discrimination and <laughs> hatreds that white cops had for black people in Los Angeles. That's not, that's not objective. Okay. But are you telling me that's not a great piece of journalism? It's a great piece of journalism, you know, yeah. and, and to dismiss this because it, it centers on Michael Jordan. It's, it's Michael Jordan's life as according to Michael Jordan. Well, what autobiography is it? You know what I mean? That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. This is the problem though, um, that I think is central to this whole discussion. I think. There's a yearning in the profession that we're in to make what we're doing important, Mm -hmm. right? Like, everybody implicitly kind of understands that, like, it's sports. It's like, it's dudes throwing this orange freaking thing (laughs) into a cylinder. Like, ultimately, this isn't Watergate. Like, everybody kind of understands that. But there's just this constant need to make what we're doing life or death. (laughs) And it's like... It's okay if we get the Michael Jordan doc wrong. I'm, I'm so, like historically, like I don't think, I, like I don't think anything is lost by this. Like even the OJ thing, where the guy's tackling the American criminal justice system and racism in America, and like what being an unabashed Uncle Tom might do to your spirit and soul. Like I think that's important. 
important, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> right. right? Whether right. Michael, like whether Gary Payton or Sean Kemp were really good in the 1996 NBA Finals, and that gets lost on the cutting room floor. I, I'm sorry, I can't cr- like cry me a river, build a bridge, right. get over it. And, and, and that in particular, it's funny you bring up Kemp. So I got some flack from the Seattle fans. I, I, I love the Sonics fans, but you know they got mad at me because I'm quoted as saying, you know, Sean Kemp was a great alley oop partner. For, for Gary Payton. And that's that's all you hear me say. Do you really think that's all I had to right, say about right. Sean Kemp in the 96 finals? Right, right. You know, when, when I, I, I told him the story of, you know, so Kemp goes off in game four, you know, probably his best game, most impactful game of his career, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, keeps the Sonics alive. And I'll never forget, the next day, John Sally says, he used to be the man child. Now he's just man squared. <laughs> you know, and and so I, I, I told those stories. I, I talked about Kemp. They chose not to, and you see why, because they chose to make the 96 finals Jordan versus Peyton. Mm-hmm. Why? Because that's the best video they had, clearly. That's some of the best footage that they have. Is I mean, first of all, Peyton's always great. Also, I think Kemp didn't talk to them. I think they tried to talk to Kemp, Sean, but he didn't talk yeah, to them. Yeah, Sean doesn't right? talk, period, now. He just yeah. disappeared, basically. <laughs> so, and and just the Jordan reaction to, to Peyton is some of the best things. So, they decided to make the story of the 96 finals first Peyton versus Jordan and then Jordan and his father and the absence of his father. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I get it, you know, and, and I, I wish I could have said more there, there, there's so much more from me. I'm sure you feel the same way, Dave. I'm sure everybody feels, you know, that they wish they would have used, but I understand the need to streamline. If you think about, let's say episode seven, for example, mm-hmm. in one episode, they talk about, Jordan retirement. They talk about Jordan playing baseball, which was its own 30 for 30, by the way. Right. They, they talk about the, the, the 93, 94 season, which, you know, Melissa Isaacson, my colleague at Northwestern, who's, who's in the documentary, she wrote a book on that. That's its own book. The 93, 94 season, the year without Michael, you talk about the Jordan comeback, which I recently saw was a, a half hour special they had on the local NBC sports here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So there's like four, and the gambling separate documentaries and the gambling, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, there's been endless conspiracy theories. And, and then, and then you get that, that great stuff about the end about Jordan and, and why he, he was such a jerk to all of his teammates. All of that is in one episode. Right, right. So <laughs> imagine how much you have to leave, leave out to squeeze all that into one episode. Yeah. So I, I get it. I had a back and forth with uh, the, the director. So I went publicly. I said, I said, look, I know they got to keep it tight, but it's just pretty jarring when you have Magic Johnson going from playing against Jordan in the 91 finals to commenting for NBC in the 92 finals. And you don't mention the pretty significant announcement. <laughs> you know, and the director actually sent me a, a direct message and said, hey, look, man, either either we we, we just say, yeah, and then Magic announced he had HIV and blow past it and don't give it the time it deserves. But if we give it the time it deserves, that's it 15 minutes. Get, yeah, it has to get its time. Yeah. This yeah. is a documentary about Michael Jordan and not Magic. And it's a 10-hour documentary. You know what I mean? It's not like it, it's not like it, this is, you know, 100 hours. You know, I mean, you could do 50 hours, I'm sure. But it's 10 hours. That's a significant chunk of network time, you know, for one person. I mean, that's pretty substantial. So, you know, it's not – I mean, ESPN's giving it – I think as much airtime as you could possibly expect the network to give one subject, you know, like I'm listening to Beckley and Ethan last night and it's an excellent pod. And I would encourage our listeners to go listen to the house of Strauss. Cause it's, a, you know, it's like an alternative offering, but they're just like, look, Mike shot 37% 
in the three games where Gary Payton guarded Mike yeah. um, directly, right? But in those three games that Scott, um, that um, Gary Payton guarded Mike directly, they were up 3-0, 3-1, 3-2. So if a guy says, I, I wasn't losing sleep about this shit, I, I was up 3-0 when the guy started guarding right. me. No, like, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I probably, like, I can, I'm going to take his word for it that he wasn't worried about Gary Payton freaking guarding him in a series that he's up 3-0 in. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like I, I, I get it. I, I, I can understand why Mike is like, look, man. If y'all think I was really worried about this shit after going up three zero, then then go ahead. But I wasn't worried about Gary yeah. Payton. Like that's this, this, this seems so obvious to me. It's akin to how he played in the Olympics in '92, where he was not the focal point of that team at all, other than in the practices that we all know about in Monte Carlo. But when they actually started Barkley, playing right? games, Barkley. By far was the best player at the Olympics that year. By far. It was him and Scotty, essentially. Um, you know, I mean, uh, David Robinson and Ewing, you know, blocked every shot in creation to set up fast breaks. But that, but it was the def- the perimeter defense of Scotty Pippen and Barkley finishing and Chris Mullen. And I, he shot like 65% on threes in, in the Olympics. Some insane number in the Olympics. I mean, so... You know, Michael took a back seat. He was really more of a facilitator. And to your point was, I don't think he gave a damn what his numbers were in the Olympics. You know, they won every game by 45 points. What difference does it make? He really didn't want to be there, don't you think? I mean, mean, they kind of dragged him in. Magic was was harping on him. Magic really wanted to play with Bird and Michael. Right. And and, and Magic just wanted to play again, period, after, after retiring with HIV. So... You know, Michael, they dragged Michael's like, I got an Olympic gold medal already, you know, from 84. So he really wasn't that into it. Um, But but then, you know, the juices got blown. The competitive juices got blown in those practices. Yeah. I mean, and and what is this documentary has been about just his need for competition. The Olympics weren't competition for him. So he's not going to be engaged. You know, it's 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 like. Shoot two foot putts for him, except for the Kukoc like games, you know, except for the yeah. two games with Kukoc, you know, and that was the only time he really kind of was into it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. That was like a exhibition for him, literally. I mean, it was just, you know. So yeah, I agree with you, Waz. Waz, I wanted to get your your take on this as well. You wrote a you wrote a really good piece about the Jordan activism uh, in the Athletic, and it was. I, I hope people get uh, take the time to read it because. You know, I, I have the same point of view as you do, but I'm glad that someone that's younger than me has that point of view because I think statically you can just look at numbers or you can look at a decision someone makes. And if you weren't there to understand the context of it, you can, I think, get it wrong. And I thought you got it mostly right in terms of, you know, we can't ask somebody else to live what the life we want them to lead. You know, they have to lead their life, right? <laughs> so, Yeah, and, and, the, and, the, and the problem for me a lot of times when you're talking about the Giants, right, that came before Jordan and guys like Bill Russell, Jim Brown, um, Kareem, even Oscar or Kurt Flood, like guys who, who put shit on the line and sacrifices. Like, and people are going to say this is, this is weak and this is corny and this is cowardice, but like, you gotta understand, like Mike had more to lose in the sense, in the sense that how, as capitalists, we look at the loss of potential profit. Like mm-hmm. when you, they were never staring down the barrel of like hundreds of millions of dollars not 
ever seeing their bank account, <laughs> right? Like these are not decisions they ever had to confront. Like you can say what you want. Um, and I say this all the time to people is like, how do you not walk around with a great resentment towards white people? And I'm just like, I don't know that I would be a great white person. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't know that, th- that that would be the case. You know, like, I don't know that about myself. I don't think that highly of myself. That be like, like, hey, works for me, right? You know, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, like presented with the option that I would be some kind of white crusader for mm-hmm. the black or colored people cause. I don't know that way. And that's the same way that I view Mike. Like the concept of, look, man, I'm going to set up my my life, my, my family's legacy and generation up forever mm-hmm. by basically shutting the hell up and presented with yes. that to, to, to be like, well, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be Muhammad Ali. It's like the, the, the pats, you can't even compare the pats. It's like Muhammad Ali said, I'm not going to Vietnam to die, to right. kill war <laughs> and oppress people for this country mm-hmm. that doesn't give a shit about like these choices. They don't mirror each other. That's why I feel like the Ali comparisons fall flat. Like this is a guy just saying like, I'm not going to war. Right. Right, like it's these are different life choices that are being made. Different, different eras, different, different stakes. Different stakes. At the time, I mean, I would say go back and listen to the the I Have a Dream speech. He was fighting for the right. You know, one of the things he he dreamed of was being able to stay in the same hotels. Right. You know, like that. that, That's the level that it was in the sixties. Like Michael Jordan wasn't fighting those fights. Michael Jordan could stay in Ritz Carlton or wherever the hell he wanted to stay. Mm -hmm. So, so the the stakes weren't as urgent. A two, two things. And you mentioned capitalism. Yes. Michael was, you know, committed to capitalism above all, right. That that (laughs) clearly was a motivating factor away from, you know, he wanted to win on the court and he wanted to make maximize his earning potential off the court. But one of the things that he did with that money was he enabled other people to be more outspoken. For example, when when Spike Lee was running out of money to finish do, uh, Malcolm X, because the studios were like, oh, we're done. We, we don't need any more. So he went to, Spike went to people like Oprah and Magic, Michael Jordan, and asked them to help fund it. So maybe Michael didn't speak but, because he wanted to make as much money as he could. But because he made so much money, he enabled Spike Lee to have his voice and his platform and, and to get a movie like Malcolm X made and the, the, with the statements that that movie made. Second, you know, he, he caught flack for, for not coming out for Harvey Gann in the race against uh, Jesse Helms in North Carolina. Let me ask you this. If someone, particularly a white person, were even contemplating, were even considering voting for Jesse Helms, do you think the words of a black man would make any difference whatsoever? You know, you know I was going to vote for this racist old senator, but, you know, because this black man said I shouldn't, I'm not going to. Like, I, I think those votes were made up, right? Yeah. You know, Jay, Bomani made that point, too, where he's like, maybe Mike had a feeling that these white people don't give a fuck what I think. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like, the idea that I need to come out and do this, like, I'm going to come out and save the world. Maybe Mike had a you know, a better understanding of this. And and I don't want people to hear this and think, you know, it's, it's quote unquote excuse making, right? Yeah. Like I'm somebody who, of course, I would have loved to see Michael Jordan get, get his hands dirty and, and get into the fight much earlier or, or sooner than he did. But you know, some of these things, are, these decisions are being asked of a 27 year old man. Like, I, like these, like we aren't fully formed people at 27. Right. Mm. I, and again, and in my piece, I said, look at, at approaching 60 years old, I would hope now Mike feels empowered and feels emboldened to, you know, speak up on things and do more. And I think in recent years, you've seen them, 
slowly, yeah. you know, sort of approach things. Remember him stepping up for LeBron right, and, right. And, and talking about the police brutality. And lastly, what I'll say, David and Jay, is like, you know, to me, Mike's greatest legacy is the bottom line is he's opened up the NBA, the contracts that you see that frees up somebody like LeBron or Carmelo to empower them to say whatever the hell they want when they want to in public is because of Mike. Yeah. You yeah, know, exactly. like the money these exactly. guys have in their bank accounts, you like it's a direct line. Like these guys weren't getting these type of deals from places like Wheaties and right. um exactly. Gatorade and Coca-Cola. They weren't getting this type of stuff before Mike and he's empowered a generation of people like the mo- like the money that you see man like the popularity of the league that that this guy built you it's undeniable yeah, you know yeah. and 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 again like I'm somebody again like I don't I don't hob what my politics are I'd like to see Mike you know burning some flags for sure <laughs> you know what I'm saying like me personally but like I I'm not going to sit here and act like you know, he's some type of some people call him a sellout or mm-hmm. this because he he didn't come out and be an activist. I, I, I don't personally feel that way. Yeah, no, the importance of him as a transitional figure cannot be stated. You know, I mean, can't be emphasized enough. He was a transitional figure. He was the first one <laughs> to get these deals. There wasn't a whole army of people. It wasn't like he was the 19th player to get, uh, you know, get McDonald's and all the, all the other deals and Nike and all the stuff he got. He was the first one. <laughs> so to expect him to reject that, you know, totally and not understand that this can help other people down the line. And I'm sure the motivation for him primarily was, Hey, that sounds like a good deal. That's good money for me. But, you can't you can't divorce that from his understanding, I think, that this will help other African-American athletes down the road be able to make deal endorsement deals that we did not get before Michael Jordan, period. There weren't any other than OJ, and we know how that turned out. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I just think that, you know, you got to you have to allow him some slack is what I'm saying. And I think LeBron has also benefited from we've had trial and error and we've had to see. So Michael was definitely afraid of if I speak out, I'm going to lose these opportunities. And what we've learned subsequently is that you can have a outspoken presence. And guess what? You're still going to get paid. Right. right, right. So Le- LeBron, LeBron throughout all his activism, if you want to call it that, in the last few years has still maintains everything right he hasn't lost a thing as far as i've known when he right. has called the president a bum or, or whatever so we didn't know that at that time though right also nike's in this too financially like nike's making equality t-shirts and they're backing colin kaepernick campaigns like financially the money is lining up behind a lot of this stuff do you understand like it's Ka- kaepernick just gained thing. endorsements from from that you know from whatever he would have lost but he wouldn't have been featured as prominently. He wouldn't have had his own, you know, his likeness on a shoe right. as he had in not doing this. So, you know, we've come to, re- well, and one thing maybe Michael should realize is that capitalism will find a way to profit off of everything, right? So whatever right. you <laughs> by being outspoken, someone else would have stepped up and paid him to be that outspoken. So, you know, capitalism is always going to win and it's always going to find a way. Um, but we didn't know that at the time. And now we understand. Right. Is there anything, uh, Jay, that you wish they would have spent 
more time on, given the, the limitations that they had time-wise? Everything. It's immensely satisfying, and yet it leaves you wanting more. But I think that's, that's a sign of any good good product, right? right. Is that you, you like to see more. Um, every, every time I think, God, I wish it would have gone. It, it just, just little things. They, they didn't even talk about the shot he made to send, I think it was game three of the 91 finals yeah. in the overtime. Right. That was a big shot at the time. The, the shot that he made against Gerald Wilkins to mm-hmm. finish off the sweep of the Cavaliers in 93 gets ignored. You think even in the highlight montages, they could throw that in there. Right. But again, it just goes to show you that there's so much material that they had to cull that there was no way they could satisfy people. Um, again, I would have liked to have seen just a little something to explain for the young folks. And, and I guess as part of they're, they're having to decide what do we feel is essential to, to tell younger people for trying to tell the story. I, I think somebody younger could have used something to, to, to explain just, you know, if you're why Magic Johnson wasn't playing in 92, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> why he was available to comment. Uh, you know, they, they, we all know, yeah. right. But, but that, that, that's just a blank. And again, it's not a major criticism. It's, it's just a nitpick that there, there's things that are in there. I, yeah, talk about Sean Kemp. Sean Kemp had a great game four, and that should have been recognized. But it, it, A, they're, they're trying to tell as much information, but they're also trying to present a narrative story. Mm-hmm. And and Kemp versus Jordan wasn't as great a story, especially based on the footage that they have, yeah. as Peyton versus Jordan. So they made the decision to make the 96 finals, Peyton versus Jordan. And I think you can see why. Yeah. I think you can objectively see, like, okay, that was the better story to tell. If you can only tell one story, that was the story to tell. Yeah. And they've got the memes to prove it. <laughs> For me, I would like to have seen them just delve into some of the more complimentary pieces of the team, of the 98 team specifically. I think, God, especially, specifically Tex and Tony Kukoc, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I would love for them to just talk about these guys' dynamic within the whole, because by 97 and 98, like, the, the documentary sort of posits Rodman as the third of the big their big three, but it was really Tony. Like, mm. he was clearly their third best player. He would anchor the offense whenever Mike wasn't in the game. Like, right. he was their, probably their second best scorer, easily. I don't think Scotty was, like, this dynamic scorer by the time it was, you know, 98 and 97. So I would love, and, and of course, Tex, you know, showed Phil that he didn't invent the offense, but he's the one that got Phil to buy into it, the philosophy and all of that. So I would love to see them talk about just more of the I, 98. I feel like they showed team. that. And I, I thought that that clip was really cool where it shows the triangles being formed. Yeah. And yeah. I, I thought that gave a good sense. I mean, again, Tex wrote a whole book on that and, and you could you could write mm-hmm. articles on the, the offense and in himself. And I think you, you start going too down deep into the weeds and the X's and O's if you get in the right. triangle offense, in particular because Jordan would abandon it whenever <laughs> it was convenient for him. So, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite lines he said, I had to tell Tex, sorry about your triangle. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's funny, I was, um, I, w- I did Van Pelt's show Monday night, and he asked me if he thought the series was fair to Scotty. And I was like, well, I thought I thought it was very fair to Scotty. I mean, they spent much of the early episodes talking about how invaluable he was. I mean, 
Jordan basically says we don't win anything without Scotty becoming, you know, this great two-way player. Um, and I guess the, the question was, you know, did they focus too much on 1.8? And I'm like, well, how could you not focus on 1.8? <laughs> I mean, that was a, that was such a major, uh, you know, it was a, it, it was a hugely significant occurrence to that franchise, no matter how it turned out, that was as big a moment for that franchise as, as almost anything other than winning the championships was. Also, David, it's, it's, it's not just the doc. Everybody's had a hard time contextualizing Scottie Pippen's career. Like, it's yeah. not just the doc. We, as a society, as a basketball-loving public, still struggle with, is Scottie the greatest role player or the most underrated you know, great player. You know what I'm saying? Like we we all struggle to 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 sort of put Scotty's contribution into focus. You know, I think the doc does a great job of explaining that Scotty was absolutely integral to what they did. It's not that Michael couldn't have won without another second best player. It's that he his contributions are so clear, man. Like what what he provided to the team and his sort of role as the good cop. I think that comes through in the series where everybody has uncomplicated feelings about Scotty. Yeah. They all love him, you know. Like his role is the good cop. Where he talks about this the the the, the season when Mike is completely gone. Where he's like, guys, you know, kind of happy not to be getting yelled at and yeah. stuff like that. Like <laughs> right. I, I think he becomes in a sharp focus, man. Yeah, you, you do get the 94 season when, when he blossoms. Uh, I don't even think they mentioned that he was the All-Star Game MVP that year. Right. That, that would have been a, a nice, easy, quick clip to show that, you know, what he did that season. He got seven first-place votes for, for MVP. I was one of the seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did blossom. But he also, we saw his shortcomings. You know, had, I mean, that, w- that was a leadership failure at a critical moment with the 1.8 seconds. And, you know, and when I, I try to demonstrate how big that was, as, as David alluded to, ask people in Chicago, ask Bulls fans, how much time was left on Paxson's <laughs> shot in, in 93? I don't know. How much time was left on Jordan's shot in 98? No one can tell you. Or Kerr's or or shot. Kerr's shot in 97. Right, right. All these shots, nobody remembers the time. But how much time was left on Scotty's shot out? <laughs> 1.8 seconds. That ain't going in. That way, and, and Derek Fisher's point four right. are, are the most well-remembered clock times in NBA history. Maybe it's unfair to Scotty that that 1.8. I think it's a testament, though, that he's not defined by that. Some people could never come back for that. He came back, thanks to Michael coming back, right. and won more, three more championships. So it, it's a testament to Scotty's career that that's not the defining moment of his career because it, it would be for a lot of other people. Right, right. I hope also that people, you know, it's been very easy, I think, to to kind of caricature Jordan's competitiveness. And the one thing I'm glad that that I, that I think people who weren't there uh, or don't remember those those years are, are getting is that while he certainly was maniacal in a lot of ways, um, he wasn't the only one <laughs> that was maniacal in those days. And it was just kind of the way the league was. And again, because there was so little free agency and there was so little player movement from year to year, unless you got traded by your team, um, that these teams tended to stay together for four or five years. So these were the same group of guys butting heads against each other year after year. 
And that's going to lead to you feeling a certain way about about other people. You know, so whether it's Isaiah or Bird or Magic, I mean, they all had these feelings, uh, you know, that they not only wanted to beat the other guys, they really wanted to, like, own them and destroy them. And I, and I hope people <laughs> understand that now, that it wasn't just this one crazy guy. They were all kind of crazy. And to that point, David, I think – and I want to ask, I want to, I've been meaning to ask you about this. I feel like a lot of Mike's mentality is informed by the absolute crap shit teams that he was on very early in his career where nothing happened without the sheer will of his excellence and greatness. Like the team literally could only go as far as Mike could take them. Like, so his mentality is like, I literally have to drag these bumps. <laughs> right. To anywhere that we're going. And that stuck with him. And to your point, it's like, it's not like how it is now where the fortunes of a team like the freaking Clippers could go from 48 wins, 45 win also ran to championship favorite mm -hmm. within the span of a season. That never happened in the NBA. You ain't go from eighth seed to championship favorite ever. Mm -hmm. That's just not how it worked back because, in the day. Because so why you couldn't leave, you couldn't go somewhere couldn't to make it anything. better. As, as right. LeBron did and, and as even as even Kevin Durant, you know, Kevin Durant from a game seven conference finals, you know, from a, a team that had been to the finals. And it wasn't enough, so he goes to the Warriors. It, it just wasn't an option, not, not just philosophically, you know, the mentality of people not doing that. And, and you know, you've heard a lot of the old times, oh, we never would have done it. But also it just wasn't as feasible. It would have cost yourself too much money. A, B, you were locking – they had longer contracts, seven-year contracts, and even longer maybe even, David. You can yeah, tell me about seven, at, at least it, seven it was There was a time where it was eight, you know. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, but seven is the one I remember for sure. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that's what Scotty's dealing with in, in, in this documentary, seven-year contracts. So you were stuck. So that was part of his mentality was that, okay, um, I can't go somewhere where the grass is greener. The, the cavalry isn't coming, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to go out and make all these deals and I can't go out and recruit guys to come join me. So I got to maximize these guys. And the only way I know how to do that is to torture Scott Burrell. <laughs> you know? But, but it, he was sort of stuck, right? He, it, and, and this was the only way that he saw out. He, he couldn't go somewhere. He, he couldn't create a super team. You know, I mean, like the super teams that the, the Lakers created for, I mean, it was just a fluke where you have Kareem there and then you have two Cleveland Cavaliers draft picks when they're the worst team in the world and you get their picks, not just their picks, you win the coin tosses. So yeah. you get number one. So you get Magic and you get James Worthy. Boom, super team. Like they created rules where the Clevelands of the world couldn't trade their number one pick Stepping in back-to-back -back year. Right. Yeah. So the rules were different. So the you know the 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 this landscape that created the Lakers super team in the eighties that didn't exist by the time you know the nineties or the late eighties came around, and certainly it was different from what we've seen in the two thousands and twenty tens. So you just have to understand, just different, completely different circumstances lead to him having to do this way. This was his only path. Yeah, yeah, and. And the, you know, the, the context of, of those early Bulls teams, you have to put in, you know, the whole, the second year breaking his foot and that, and that, how, how that kind of set the tone for the rest of his time in Chicago, 
You know what I mean? Like that, the way that that was handled by the Bulls, um, that is what, that's why he felt that way <laughs> to me. The rest of his time yeah. with the Bulls, certainly, you know, with Krause, and I think to a lesser extent, Reinsdorf, but certainly Krause, because Krause was the messenger. But, you know, the way they handled that is just anathema to, to someone like him that's just, you know, and, and you know, you listen to Reinsdorf it, saying, making the analogy to aspirin, giving you a 9% chance of killing you. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that sort of makes sense. I could understand that from, from, from the guy who's, who's writing the checks. I don't want to have any percent chance that I'm going to lose my franchise player. Um, but then you can also understand where Jordan's coming from with regard to this is my life and I'm going to live it the way I want to, you know? You know what's so dope about, I think, another thing that gets lost in this it, throughout the duration of the doc, and that scene illustrates it the most with Jordan's like these guys are looking at it half full. Like, Jordan is a really optimistic guy. Mm. <laughs> like, well, he believes in himself. He's optimistic right, yeah. in what he thinks he can do, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. It, like, he has a sunny, like, outlook on, like, what the possibilities can be. Um, as much as people think that he's this morose, sour guy and he's petty and he's thin-skinned, which he, you know, he can be and that's been demonstrated. But, like, time and time again, Jordan's always talking, taking an optimistic view about something to the point where even when he talked and, like, again, like, the stuff that people complain about, like, it's like, why didn't we get into his relationship with his dad? What did his dad teach him? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, my dad always taught me to spin stuff to a positive. Mm -hmm. um, it's And, again, like, if he has this admiration for his dad somebody like me it's not hard for me to imagine what he's spinning to the positive like all of the things that his dad did for him that his dad equipped him with as far as you know your parents job is to equip you for the freaking world yeah, right like man. like all of the stuff his dad left him with and gave him you know like i don't know a lot of that stuff shines through in the doc for me when i'm listening to i'm just listening to my talk and right. he's just like i gotta spin it positive i gotta i gotta right. keep a positive outlook like, I, 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 I don't know. I just feel like Mike is a really optimistic I, guy. You know what's funny? I don't know if I'd call it optimism or um, outsized confidence. Um, mm -hmm. it, but, but, but part of it gets back to, to egos as well. And, and John Thompson used to say, we wouldn't be talking about any of these guys if not for egos. And in order to become the best in the world, you have to have the audacity to think that you can be the best in the world. Right. Yep. Best in the history, right? You have to, yep. something in you has to think that it's possible for me to become like, you know, I, I, I don't have that that outsized notion. Um, but all the greats do. First and foremost, you have to believe and think about it. I've never thought about optimism, but maybe it's outsized confidence that he could be successful at baseball after not having played it since he was a teenager. He, he actually thought he could step in and, and be a successful baseball player in his 30s. But if you think about it, it, it it's confidence um, and, and the necessary confidence in order for him to be as great at basketball as he was. Yeah. Um, real quick, a random thought I had is that just like the 93-94 season, I thought was a testament to Pippen and what he did with the absence of Jordan. Um, the 97-98 season is really a testament to Jordan and what he did in the absence of Pippen. Yeah. Pippen misses a third of the season. Yep. I just looked it up this morning. They, they go 24-11 and 11, um, while Scotty's out. Uh, they. They finished, they win 62 games that season. 62 games. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've been so caught up in these 70s. Like, 62 games in a season in which they didn't have their number two guy for a third. The last game before Scotty comes back, they beat the Knicks by one point. Michael scores 44 points. I think the next second 
highest bull was like 14 or 15 points. Right. Um, they get like eight points off the bench. <laughs> I mean, he single-handedly wins an NBA game in like January, right? Yeah. Because that's him. That's that's the drive that he had. That's the ability he had to kind of overcome any sort of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it, – it, to me, I wanted to, to go back to the, the – audacity or the confidence. I, I, there's a great book. One of my favorite books is the book that Richard Ben Kramer wrote, the great historian about the 1988 presidential campaign. And it's called What It Takes. And it's all about this idea that you talked about. How crazy do you have to be to think that you can be president of the United States and that you can solve all the problems that are going on in this country and in the world? You have to be so incredibly egotistical to think that you alone can do this, that you're the guy or the woman that can do this and that can solve all these, you know, these generational problems that have not been solved. Um, you have to have an amazing ego to do that. And that's your, to your point, that's what those guys, birds and magics and Jordans and Isaiah's believed about themselves. That they were the guy, you know, they were the guy that could make this, that could turn a franchise around and, you know, to a lesser degree, turn the league around because they all had a hand in it in the eighties. Right. So, I mean, you have to have a remarkable type of ego to kind of feel the, the way that these players, and you have to, because the other guys are trying to kill you. You know what I mean? Like not figure, <laughs> not literally, but those right. guys are trying to kill you, <laughs> you know, they're trying to destroy your competitiveness. Really and they're really good, yeah. So. You keep coming to a league with magic and bird in it and think, yeah, I can be better than these guys. They're right. really, really right. good. Right. Now, maybe speaking, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to transition too harshly, but, you know, speaking of, you know, major egos and things like that, I mean, we have heard, Jay, this week, you know, the league is, and the players, you know, in tandem almost are basically saying, yeah, we're we're going to we're going to play. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that and, and going forward, you know, if, if you think this is going to work. Well, as, as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, the, the concern has to be about the coaches and the officials and, and all the other older people, athletic trainers who, who are going to be inside the bubble, so to speak, if you yeah. do go in the bubble. The, the thing about it is that any any type of reopening is predicated on widespread testing and we've seen that the nba has the ability <laughs> to do a large number of tests in a short period of time i mean they tested the entire utah jazz traveling party i think it was about 60 people in you know not an instant um but Double. you know a overnight, few hours basically. a few hours yeah. yeah overnight they were able to test the entire group when when they wanted to and this is part of because of their foresight so they had told every team hey you need to establish relationships with your local uh, medical providers so that you can get tests right away. So they have the ability to do widespread tests. From what I read, there was an earlier story in ESPN.com a couple of weeks ago that they said, you know, we can do the tests. We're just concerned about the PR. Exactly. How it's right. going to look if, if we're testing everyone when our, our medical providers can't get tests themselves. Our first responders aren't able to get tests when they yeah. need them. Right. They're on the front lines of this. So we're, we're worried about the backlash. One thing I think we've seen in the interim so if people that are complaining, the, the types of people that are protesting and showing up, they don't strike me as the type of people that would be NBA fans in the first place. Let's just yeah, put it that way. Right, right. right. So that's fair. I don't think that's the demographic. So you're not going to have them regardless, right? Mm -hmm. So I just feel like, much like Jordan 
really shouldn't have worried about what people were saying. I don't think the impact he was going to have on winning over the, the Jesse Helms voters. Yeah. I don't think the NBA is going to win over the, the don't tread on me people that are out there protesting in front of the state capitals. So doing pushups can do it safely. Right? <laughs> so if you, if you can do it safely, if you can test to the point that you can have the, the greatest amount of confidence and, and reassurance to the degree that you have, we understand it's not 100%, but if you can test rapidly and effectively and widespread, I think you can do this with a degree of safety, not complete safety, but with a degree of safety. And if the concern is the optics, then I, I think there's, the, the people that want to see the NBA play are going to be happy enough to see the NBA play. And the people that don't want to see the NBA play are probably people that weren't going to buy tickets or watch NBA games <laughs> in the first place. So I really wouldn't worry about it. One day we're going to get into the the dichotomy of people who can't go to Denny's without an AK telling all of us we're all wussies for wearing masks. But, you know, whatever. One day we'll be able to get into that. I just think the the cool thing about – I think what needs to happen is you get the players on record and, look, if these guys go on record and make a commitment to – quarantining themselves for a two-month period for a playoff where they don't leave the premises for two straight months Mm -hmm. to get this done. If you get that commitment out of them to ensure that this is as safe an environment as possible, um, I don't see anything wrong with it. And and I like the idea of putting the responsibility on these guys. Like, if you come out and say, like, I'm willing to do this, to isolate myself from my family, or... You know, talk my family into isolating themselves from the freaking world for two months to in order to get this thing done. I, I, I'm cool with that, but they you, you you have to hold them to that commitment, though. Yeah, yeah. And it shouldn't be hard. It's not that big of an ask to say, you know, you can continue to provide for your family in a lucrative manner if you do this two month sacrifice. We ask our military members, and I rarely, I'm very reluctant normally to make comparisons like this, but yeah. we're asking our military members to go overseas for a year and, you know, face bullets. And, and you know, here you are, and, and there is a risk, and there is a mortal risk, but it, it's, it's a lesser risk, particularly for people of this age. And it's a lesser sacrifice with a much greater reward than, than our military members face. So, so I think that's possible. I do think, though, that the NBA could minimize the, um, the the risk in this and and sort of maximize their chances of getting through it rather than trying to play an entire rest of the regular season and a normal postseason. I think just do a cup. Just do it like FIBA World Championship style where mm-hmm. you do a round-robin play for a couple weeks and then medal rounds. Yeah. And then um, I'd say get in and get out and try to do it in two or three weeks and just say, you know what? Hey. Turner and ESPN, we're going to give you some programming, so don't take your money back, all of it back. You know, we're, we're going to give you some programming. It's going to get great ratings. Uh, we're going to give you as much as we can, but it's not feasible to think. I don't see how you can get through a full NBA postseason without positive test showing up. UFC couldn't get through one event exactly. with, with a much smaller scale without somebody testing positive. So I just think if, if you want to try to have something complete, even though it would be far from the satisfying NBA playoffs that we all know and love. But if you just want to have a champion, and maybe you don't call it the 2020 NBA champion, maybe you just say it's the winner of the 2020 NBA Cup. But just have a small-scale tournament and just get in and get out and do it in a month and say, you know, we did it. This is what it is. It's not great. 
But you know what? We gave you guys something. We gave Turner and ESPN something to fill our end. Yeah. We gave sports fans something to watch. And this is as good as we can do. Uh, they can't have this, you know, bring all 30 teams in. It's it's insane. Uh, logistically, it's insane. You you are... <clears throat> for what? You had your exactly. chance to make the playoffs, it's exactly, That's guys. my whole like, point. It was 60-something games. Exactly. Get out of here. It wasn't like I'm they played... These, yeah. these temp seeds talking right. about, well, we could have clawed our way back. Get the hell out of here exactly. with that. Y'all had all season for this. Get out of here. Right. You're done. They, did, they didn't play nine games. <laughs> you know, they played 65, most of them. So, you know, I agree. And, you know, just go right to the playoffs. And I, I, I have written and said they should, you know, li- they should limit at least the first round series. I think they should go to the miniseries. I think that would be great TV if you went back to the three game miniseries like they had back in the day. Because can you imagine, you know, one of the L.A. teams, doesn't even matter which one, losing the first game at home. And now all of a sudden their season's on the line in game two. I mean, that's just, that would be incredible theater and drama in terms of ratings and things like that. Um, but any, any of the favorite teams losing the first game, but you know, however they do it, it has to be just the playoffs. You know, the, the, the teams at the bottom don't want to play because they don't want their players to get injured. Cause this is, I mean, and it's a valid point. If, if a bad team's best player plays in these meaningless five or six games, and gets hurt now. They're now they're not going to play start of next season. You know what I mean? So now you're not. They won't be there for training camp probably. So or, or the start of next season. So you're you're penalizing them again. So that doesn't make any sense to me. But Jay, man, it was. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the time, man. I know these are these are stressful times for all of us. So um, thank you for for your perspective. And um, you these, know, these are nice escapes. You know, just like the last dance feels like a a. a, a, a a vacation, really, right, every right, Sunday. Right. We get to go back in time and relive the 90s and escape this era. So, you know, doing these podcasts is, is fun because, uh, yeah, it's fun, it's fun to chop it up with my boys. Man, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for your time, man. Stay safe in those Thank streets, you, man. Thank you, fellas. Thanks all a lot. All right, all right. That's my, you know, one of my, one of my real dear friends from all, from many years back. You know, you know how you just hit it off with people, and you just know this yes, is sir. It's a good brother I can kick it with. You know, and Jay's always yes. been that guy. You know, just um, awesome. you know for for a very long time. So, just want to thank everybody for listening. We hope that, as Jay put it, that you know this show can be an escape of sorts for you. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you guys downloading us and, and taking advantage of. The, all of the different ways you can get it, Apple Podcasts or the app, all those things. The numbers have been very good of late, and I really, really do appreciate it. And thank you for letting us know uh, that you like the show. And, you know, leave comments. There are now comments available um, in, at the podcast if you want to tell us what we're doing right and what we could do better. And please leave that uh, five-star review on Apple Podcasts and uh, iTunes and all the other other places. So we will talk to you again next week. Thank you.